Amen. Nathan, thank you. The, uh, the theme of this morning seems to be joy, doesn't it? Rejoice, ye pure in heart, as Nathan just played for us. We heard the children sing about the joy that the Holy Spirit brings in our hearts and the commandment to rejoice always uh, that comes from Scripture. And I, I hope this morning that you are filled with joy, no matter what you're going through or what your circumstance may be. And I've taken a lot of joy in this sermon series. I've heard from several of you who've grown up in more liturgical traditions in a Methodist or Episcopal or Anglican or Lutheran church. And this is like home, homecoming for you, I know, uh, saying these, the creed and uh, I want to be clear, I've said this before, but in case you're visiting with us or, or if you have missed part of this series, but the creed is not authoritative, right? The scriptures are our sole basis for life and faith and practice as Christians, as evangelicals. But I believe the creed is a helpful distillation of the scripture. It's a wide sweeping overview of Genesis to Revelation showing us what God has done as part of his plan to redeem all things and bring us back to himself. So I'm grateful to go on this journey with you all. Thank you for agreeing to do this through mid-November. We're going to finish on November 18th, and then we're going to have a, a Thanksgiving service uh, that evening. We'll have a Thanksgiving celebration the next Sunday morning after Thanksgiving, and then we're going to begin Advent. I can't believe that it's already here. I love it. It's my favorite time of year, and I'm grateful uh, for you all. As we move through the creed, we're just getting more and more into the core, the, the very middle of the creed is the most essential part of the creed. It's the part that talks about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who our faith really centers around the work of Christ on the cross. We, we talked last week about the fact that, that Jesus was born so that he could rescue this fallen world and, and rescue us fallen people by dying for our sins. Yes, he was born miraculously of a virgin. He was incarnated. God took on flesh. Why? So that he could go to the cross and bear our sins. He was crucified, died, and was buried. Last week was all about the cross. It was kind of a Good Friday service, but I told you that Sunday was coming, right? We were going to have a little Easter uh, today in October, which I'm so excited about. But before we get to Easter, uh, there's a line in the creed that talks about how Jesus descended into hell. So we're going to get into that first. Uh, too often, I think we tend, Richard and I talked about this, we tend to jump right from Good Friday straight to Easter, and we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about Saturday, right? In, in the liturgical world, Saturday is known as Holy Saturday, right? When low in the grave he lay. Our text for today is a long one, and I think it's okay to read a lot of scripture in church on Sunday. I hope you agree with that. I hope you're okay to hear a lot of scripture. I'm going to break it up into three sections, and I'm not even going to ask you to stand as I read uh, these three sections. I know you're doing a lot of standing during our other liturgical elements. Brian said, I don't mind standing. It's good for me. I like to stand up, sit down, but uh, some of you, I'll, I'll let you sit uh, during this time. So just listen to these words. Or read along as I read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 through, through 55. I want you to picture this whole scene of crucifixion. Just to use your imaginations this morning and, and think about what it means that the Son of God was crucified. 
and died. Starting in verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, we see here in this passage that we just read the greatest act of injustice and evil ever perpetrated on the earth, while at the same time it's the greatest act of love and mercy and salvation that could ever have been construed. They're, they're mocking the sinless, perfect Messiah. They, they, they mock him incessantly after beating him. This is God in the flesh, and they beat him. And then they nail him to a wooden cross, raising him up, wrongfully executing him in the most cruel and painful and shameful way possible. And they, they berate the Son of God on the cross who appears to be helpless and defeated. But we also see in this instance the unfolding of God's great plan of salvation for the world. 
We see God's loving plan to put sin to death itself on the cross. And the text here says that the moment that Jesus actually died, when he yielded up his spirit, things went nuts. There was darkness at an irregular hour of the day. The curtain in the temple, the massive curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the court of the Jews, tore itself in half from top to bottom, symbolizing Jesus' own body, which was torn for our sake, separating the barrier between us and the holy God. You also see there's a great earthquake that happens the minute that Jesus takes his final breath, and the tombs all over Jerusalem are opened. Why do these things happen all of a sudden? Because Jesus Christ died. He actually died. He entered into the state of death. His heart stopped. His lungs were still. His brain was completely dead. I have a friend, uh, Matt McCullough, who pastors Trinity uh, Community Church. They use our sanctuary for baptisms. They use our fellowship hall once a quarter for their uh, membership meetings. And Matt is a young guy. He's a PhD from Vanderbilt, and he just authored this, this book called Remember Death. And he said that the publishers at uh, Crossway were like, that's a terrible title. You should change that title. And he insisted, no, I want to call it Remember Death death. That's the point of it. And they said, that's not really upbeat. It doesn't, it's not really catchy. It's kind of depressing. You sure you wouldn't rather go with something a little more trendy? He said, absolutely not. Because the whole basis for writing the book is that nobody wants to talk about death these days. It's the new obscenity. It's inappropriate nowadays to even mention death. If we have to talk about death, we, we try to soften it as much as we can. We say, you know, passed away, or, or they're no longer with us, or something like that. It would be impolite to remind someone of the reality of the truth that death comes for us all. The truth is this, that each one of us is headed for an end to this mortal life. So my buddy Matt argues that for Christians, remembering death actually helps us to live into the promises of Jesus. Remembering death actually helps us to live with hope in this life, the hope that Marcus just prayed about in his offertory prayer. People who live well, generally speaking, people who live God's way in this earth, people who live wise and godly lives, generally die well, too. Do you know what I mean? What I'm saying is, is I want my death to, to do the same thing that I want my life to do. When it's my time to go and, and my time's up, I want my death to glorify God, to point to the greatness and the surety of my salvation in Christ Jesus. I want people to see the abiding hope and trust that I have in my Savior. I've had the amazing privilege as pastor of this church to to watch many people go through this journey, this transition of mortal life to eternal life. And in seeing them do that well, it's been incredibly humbling and inspiring. I want people to know the hope that abides in my soul because of my Savior. And one reason for that hope that we can have is this, this fact that Jesus himself died. 
He's able to comfort us and carry us through that great transition from this life to the next because he's actually done it himself. He's experienced it. And and let's be clear, death is the worst thing in the world, right? Death is the, the ultimate power of sin. Sin always brings death. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death. Nothing died in all creation. But now sin necessitates death. Sin brings death and destruction always. But for Christians, for Christians, for people who die with Christ, we know that death has lost its sting. Death becomes only temporary. Death is not the end. I recently read about the Puritan preacher and and scholar John Preston. He died in 16... 28. And as he was on his deathbed, his friends, family gathered around him, asked him if he was scared. And he said, no. He whispered, I shall change my place, but I shall not change my company. John Preston walked with Jesus throughout his life and throughout his death and after his death. Jesus remained the one constant in life, death, an afterlife. That's what's meant in the, the creed when it says Jesus descended into hell. It means Jesus died. My wife grew up Methodist and they said the creed every week in, in her church, but in the Methodist hymnal, it, it had a, a little uh, asterisk there when it says uh, that Jesus was buried. It doesn't say descended into hell. And at the bottom of the page, it said some versions add Jesus descended into hell. That's because that was only added in uh, the the 300s. That's how ancient this creed is. Someone asked me this week, who wrote the creed? We don't know. It's based on the apostles' teaching. But the creed as we know it was set in the 100s. And this was added in the 300s by some of the early church fathers. Why did they add it? Why was that phrase important for them to, uh, to add? Well, I think we'll understand that more as we get on here in a minute. I want to get to the Easter part, so let me briefly explain. In Greek, the original language of the New Testament, and therefore of the Apostles' teaching and of the Apostles' creed, had two words for hell. In English, we just think of hell as the place of eternal retribution for those who die separated from God. But the earliest form of the Apostles' Creed has a different word for hell than what we think of. You know, Jesus talked about that place of eternal retribution as Gehenna. That's the Greek word that he used for the place of separation from God. Gehenna, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he says. But there's another word in Greek for hell, and that's Hades. And Hades is the word that's used in the Creed here, not Gehenna. Hades simply referred to the place of the departed, the place where those who died have gone to, their souls. So what happens when we die? Quick refresher here. Scripture says that our souls and our bodies are separated. Our bodies turn to dust, right? Whether you're cremated or buried or whatever. While our souls are, for those of us who are in Christ, go to be with the Lord. At least until the resurrection of the dead, which we will get to in a few weeks. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And here's the key. 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He went through that separation of body and spirit. His flesh was dead, but his spirit was alive in Hades. So when the creed says that Jesus descended to hell, it doesn't mean that he went to Gehenna. It doesn't mean that he went to experience punishment. What it means is he actually entered into that lower state of existence where your body and soul are separated at death, where his body lay in the tomb and his soul entered into the afterlife. His body was buried in a tomb. Why does the creed say that? Because the scriptures say that. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says Jesus died and was buried and rose again. So why does it say that? Because it shows us that Jesus really died. A burial is a finality moment, isn't it? Where someone is buried. And this is how Jesus was buried. Look at Matthew 27, verses 57 through 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what happened on Saturday? What happened while Jesus was in the tomb? What happened while his flesh and his spirit were separated? Well, his disciples were at their lowest moment. Surely they were sitting around thinking, great, now what? Our rabbi, our savior, our Messiah is dead. Now what do we do? But Jesus was at work. Jesus' spirit, just by virtue of showing up in Hades in the afterlife, transformed the afterlife for those who were believers in the sovereign God of the universe, the triune God. He transformed it into a paradise. That's why he, in Luke, we see that he tells the thief on the cross who believed in him, the penitent thief, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a promise that we now can claim as children of God who've been made righteous heirs with Jesus. He transformed Hades into paradise. It's what we usually call heaven, right? Paul tells us about being present with Jesus, when our souls are present with Jesus in paradise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body 
and at home with the Lord. Because Jesus actually died and entered Hades, we now can look forward to paradise when we die. In the very instant we take our last breaths, we know that we will be in paradise. Paul says we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But even then, even when we're at home with the Lord, that's not the end of the story. We don't just stay separated from our bodies. We're gonna get to that in a few weeks, I can't wait. It's not the end because Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in Hades. He didn't stay in paradise. He rose again. I said this would be an Easter Sunday. We've been talking about death a lot. I'm sorry. Uh, We're going to get to the good news now. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. (laughs) I love this image of the angel sitting on the stone after... Pilate told the guards, make it as secure as you can. And the angel's like, whoop, I'm just going to sit on it. (laughs) His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. (laughs) I love how casual that is. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This changes everything. Just as scripture had long ago foretold, the Messiah was raised on the third day. So, so what does it change? I said it changes everything. What, what am I talking about? What difference does the resurrection of Christ make? Well, well think about what if Jesus, Marcus, you know, prayed in his prayer, thank you, God, that you didn't leave Jesus in the tomb, that he's alive. What if Jesus had been like every other religious leader that ever lived in history? What if he had founded this new religion, given us this great body of amazing teachings, and then died and then stayed dead? Like, Confucius or Buddha or any other leader throughout history? What if we still had his teachings? What if we still had his writings? Would that be enough? No. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, points out four things from Scripture that would then be true. If Jesus stayed dead, well, first off, to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. The second thing that would be true is there'd be no hope of our rising either. We could just expect to stay dead and for our souls to be with Jesus forever, and that would be the end of it. 
Third, if Christ isn't risen, then he's not victorious. He'd be defeated, and so he couldn't come back and finish the work of redemption, which he promised to do. And then every single line of the creed, after Jesus died and was buried, you'd have to delete all that other stuff. Fourth thing, Christianity cannot be what we've always said it was, a relationship, a personal relationship with the living Savior, the living Lord, who's the same Jesus that we read about in the the Bible. Packer says, the Jesus of the Gospels could still be your hero, but he couldn't be your Savior if he didn't rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was the climax of the story of everything ever. I learned as a ninth grader in English class that the climax of the story was that that part of the story at the very pinnacle of, of the story from after which nothing would be the same. There was no going back after the climax. It was the turning point. It was the point after which nothing could ever be the same. That's the resurrection. It's like in the final Lord of the Rings book, The Return of the King, when the good and wise wizard Gandalf shows back up as Gandalf the the White and little Samwise Gamgee, one of the hobbits who's just been through the ringer, yells out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? I love that. Or in The Lion, the Witch, and the the Wardrobe, when Aslan, the great lion, the ruler of Narnia, comes back to the permanent winter that has been uh, enslaving Narnia, and the snow starts to melt, and the flowers start to appear again as winter starts to lift. When Jesus rose on that first Easter morning, death itself, the dreadful, you can get that off the screen, we're not there yet. Thanks, Gabe. (laughs) Thanks, man. When Jesus rose that, that first Easter morning, death itself, the, the dreadful effect of sin, death, began to work backwards. Instead of brutally imposing some kind of terrible finality on us, death itself one day will die. Satan was dealt a mortal wound when Jesus rose. Lo, his doom is sure, we sing now with confidence. So let me briefly give you five truths now, now, okay, about the resurrection of Christ. Five truths. First, the resurrection of Christ was a verdict that everything God says is true. It was ruled by the judge to be true. Second, it was a vindication that Jesus was indeed the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Third, it was a victory. As Marcus prayed in his prayer, Christ defeated hell. He defeated death and sin and the grave forever. Fourth, it was a validation that our full forgiveness is secured. It's paid in full. It's been validated. You know, parking downtown these days, you got to get your ticket validated, right? To show that you're legit, that you actually did what you said you were going to do. Jesus' resurrection validates our forgiveness, and our debt is paid in full. Last, it was a vision of the future, that one day we too will be raised to a whole new kind of life in the new heaven and the new earth, forever to reign with the risen Christ. 
This is good news. In a world filled with bad news, this is good news. Packer again says that the resurrection was the most hopeful, the most hopeful thing that has ever happened. And I agree. We have no need now to fear anything in this world, not death or disease or politics or injustice or poverty or violence or anything else because our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus. It's a hope that assures us a right verdict, a full vindication, a complete victory, a perfect validation, and a future vision. Let's allow that transforming hope of the resurrection to compel us to go out from this place today and live as resurrection people in our world. People who carry a living hope into a world where death seems to be the worst thing ever. Let's tell them that death can work backwards through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has come to defeat death forever. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for the good news that on the third day, you rose again. God, we thank you that you have defeated death so that now we can confidently say, oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? You've not won the day. Death is only temporary. We know from your word, you tell us in Revelation chapter 20 that one day death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire, never again to wreak havoc on anyone, that you will wipe away every tear. And God, while we grieve the, those who have died in our lives, we, we've experienced death and we've tasted death, we grieve not as those without hope because our Savior has experienced death, actual death as well. We thank you for going to the afterworld, going to the next life where your body lay in the tomb and your spirit transformed our afterlife into a paradise so that now we can look forward to being present with you in our spirits when we die. God, I know that you have us here for a reason and that you are using your church to spread the good news, to advance your kingdom, to make your will done here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that we would live as resurrection people who are full of hope, who are hopeful because of the resurrection of Christ. We thank you for this Easter promise that we one day we'll rise again, just like you. God, we thank you again for your word and for these hopeful promises which we claim through Jesus Christ our Lord, and every one of them is yes and amen in him. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, uh, and we're gonna have a time of invitation now. If you've never accepted the free gift of salvation that Christ secured for you on the cross, I invite you to come and talk about that now. The, the salvation that he vindicated and validated by rising again on the third day. Easter hope is only for those who live in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. So I invite you to come and talk about what that looks like now. Maybe you are ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and make this your church home and ready to talk about what it, that means to be a full member here at Woodmont. I'd love to talk with you about that as well. 
maybe you just have a lot in your heart this week and you just want to come to the altar and pray. You just want to come and seek the Lord and his face and his guidance and his comfort during this time. If that's you, the, the altar is going to be open here. I'm going to invite you to, to stand at this time. And if you just want to come and pray or talk, we're going to sing our hymn of invitation. Let's stand together. I'll be here to receive you.